Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Kerry O'Connor. Co-founder at Tonic, Kerry has many specialities, including marketing strategy, PR, and belting out power ballads to huge crowds for charitable causes. A fitness fan with a London marathon under her belt, she's mostly worked agency side for the likes of Ogilvy, Imagination, and Dragon Rouge, yet also has her client side chops from a stint with what is now Virgin Media. Kerry says too many businesses are pushing out bland communications. We see the same mistakes being made over and over again. The biggest of which is creating content that is meaningful to you, but not to the client. So get your heads market orientated, people. Welcome to the show, Kerry. Thank you very much, Giles. I'm looking forward to chatting. Good stuff. Me too. Right. Seven quickfire questions then, Kerry. Mac or PC? Always a Mac. Beer or wine? Oh, tricky one. Um, wine. Client side or agency side? Agency side. New biz or customer retention? Oh, okay. Um, can I say both? Or do I have to choose one? Go on. It's both. Some fair to trip you up there. Disco or rave? Oh, 80s disco. <laughs> Generosity or achievement? Um, oh, that's a tricky one as well because I—they're both my values. Um, I would say, oh, generosity. And lastly, public speaking or public singing? Right. Okay. Um, based on my my last performance, public speaking. <laughs> We can talk more about that later. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So, so Kerry, how did it all start? So, what was your first job? ever and and then what was your first advertising job okay so um probably like most people I was out working kind of as soon as I could um to earn some earn some money and um you know me and my sisters you know were very much brought up in a household of having a good work ethic um and were learning you know the value of money kind of very early on so you know sales assistants I worked at CNA I worked at Wallace I was a chambermaid I even worked in a packing factory. Um, so lots of those jobs, you know, from 16 onwards and kind of throughout university just to earn cash. Um, but the first proper job was actually at Ogilvy. Um, but I didn't start, I didn't quite get into Ogilvy through the right channels. Um, I went in as a temp. Um, and in those days, it was actually against company policy to take temps on into full-time roles. Again, they didn't promote PAs and secretaries either. Um, but I was lucky enough to um, have a stint um, covering for the PA of the guy who ran the Ford of Europe account. And um, he saw something in me and, um, and managed to get me a job um, in client service, um, kind of through the back door, put it that way. 
Well, that seems like an odd policy, doesn't it? If someone's talented, surely that promotion shouldn't be prohibited. Yeah, and, you know, um, Amy um, Keane, who was chatting on one of your podcasts recently, I mean, she, she had a similar kind of journey in. And there was a lot of stigma if um, if you got into advertising in those days, if you were a temp or a PA or a secretary. Um, but some of us did kind of slip through the net. And I guess, you know, without um, without that particular gentleman kind of seeing something in me, you know, maybe I wouldn't have stayed in, in the creative sector at all. Yeah. And, and how long did you stay there then with Ogilvy? At Ogilvy, I was there for four years and I spent the last two years um, at Ogilvy and Ogilvy One because I worked on the Ford account, which was kind of headed up at Ogilvy and the IBM account, which was headed up at Ogilvy One. Um, in those days, Ogilvy One was considered the kind of poor cousin. It was the kind of direct marketing kind of arm of the business but actually became very fundamental to the business because it also was the um, the division that was working on what we call then interactive, which is now digital. Um, so obviously became yeah, very important to the business um, over, over the years. Yeah, okay. And um, what happened after Ogilvy? And, and, and how did you go from Ogilvy to, to Tonic, which we'll come on to um, in more detail a bit later? Yeah, so um, after Ogilvy, um, you know, I mean, I had a great time at Ogilvy. It's, it was, you know, such a fantastic place. I mean, it really is called the University of Advertising for a reason because you, you learn so much there and you get great exposure and great experience, um, you know, big agencies, big clients. But I think I wanted to get some client-side experience um, and that's when I went to what is now Virgin Media, but it was NTL Interactive at the time. Um, and got some client side experience, but soon realized that, you know, agency life was for me and um, very different cultures, you know. So um, I think you soon realize kind of which side of the fence is you're suited to. Um, and then after NTL, I went to publicist and then and I moved into in-house marketing because when I was at NTL, there was a lot of um, mergers and acquisitions going on. Um, they had put, bought part of cable and wireless. Obviously, then there was a the merger with Virgin Media um, and it was real chaos there. You know, the, the whole kind of communications and marketing internally and externally around all of that was was quite a mess. So it kind of got me interested more in kind of marketing and comms. Um, and I wanted to go back into agency world. So I went back into publicist and I went into the marketing department. And kind of that's where my, my career has kind of carried on in, 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 that, kind of, uh, in that kind of way. Um, so publicist, I was there for a few years. Um, and then, you know, as, as you're always trying to learn um, as you go, you know, it's always very important. that when you stop learning, you should, you should move on. Um, and I wanted to learn more about um, kind of brand um, and the role of brand in, in marketing. Um, and that's when I went to Dragon Rouge. And that's where I met uh, my now business partner in Farmfield because he was one of the, um, the, the co-founders of Dragon Rouge. From Dragon Rouge then, was that the last step to creating Tonic? No, I, I'd worked at Dragon Rouge for many, many years. Um, I absolutely loved it there. It was, it was just like a family. I think it was, I'd gone from big agency culture to an, a small independent. I mean, they're not that small now. They're still independent, but there's eight offices now. Um, but I think, you know, it's much more hands-on. You know, you get exposure to many different, um, you, in fact, you get exposure to whatever you want when you're in a small company because you can kind of put yourself forward a lot more than you can in large organisations. Um, so, but again, you know, I, I'd kind of got to the stage where there wasn't much more I could do there. I, there was nothing more I could learn. 
Um, so I went from, you know, running the marketing department there of 40 people to imagination um, to running the marketing department for EMEA for, to 400 people. So, um, you know, done quite a big step there. Imagination is, a, is an experiential company. So, again, a different sector to get my head around. Um, and I stayed there for a few years um, until I was ready to kind of branch out on my own. Cool. Can you can you sum up the difference or, or the challenges going, um, if we take a step back, going from agency to client side? Because I think certainly from my experience, that transition from client to agency is, is or typically people think that's harder than going agency to client. Now, I don't know if that's something that us agency side folk like to tell ourselves to make us feel superior in some warped way but 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 what was that like for you and 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 why did you ultimately step back into agency side after NTL? Yeah it's interesting because I mean obviously there there's it's it is a cultural um thing you know and it's it's really down to to your own character and personality and the type of environment that you that you want to be in and what you perform best in and you know client side is actually very 9 to 5 you know so the benefit of actually you know just doing a normal day's work um so first of all i felt really out of sorts because i was finishing work at 5 rather than probably finishing at 8 or 9 which i was used to um but you know you do get tied up with quite a lot of um procedures and formality and policies when you're in client side and actually you know there's a lot of lot lots of parts of your work you know aren't that much fun you know, um, and I think, you know, there's there's a stat about how much time clients spend with their agencies and it's only 5% of their time. So the other 95% of their time is doing sometimes quite mundane work. Um, so, you know, you soon realise if you if you if you are creative minded that um, that you're probably more suited to agency. So, yeah, I, I, I miss the long hours that I was doing in agency world. <laughs> Yeah, well, funny enough, that stat, that five percent of their time being with with agency in that in that relationship, is 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 a stat that we referenced on a um, a previous show with with Paul Meller, who runs um, Meller and Smith, which is a fantastic um, independent agency in in London. And his point, and it's a point that I like to remind myself and, and colleagues here, is that that small percent of time that we get to spend with our clients is likely to be the clients most creative and, and in some instances most kind of fun that they have in their general day but it's easy if you are um if you only have experience agency side to assume that all businesses are like agencies but actually we're we're, a, we're, we're quite a different um type of business absolutely you know and we do work differently and we think differently to other industries so yeah it's um it is interesting that yeah when you go client side um i mean there, there are benefits obviously but i think it just it's down to the individual at the end of the day yeah, so so now actually you've kind of. Uh, I'd be interested to know whether you consider yourself to be an agency because actually you now at a Tonic, which you founded with Ian, you now help this new this different breed of company. You you exist to assist agencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we. I guess we're not an agency. I guess we're more of a consultancy, you know, a management consultancy. But where the bigger agencies might go to one of the large management consultancies, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole load of other agencies. I mean, there's something like 30,000 agencies in London, you know, obviously, that's from one man band to much bigger agencies. And where do the smaller independent agencies go for help? 
you know, they probably don't want to go to a large management consultancy. And also we've worked in the creative space, you know, so, you know, we've, we've worked in that in, in those in those different agencies in different sectors um, with different kind of management styles and cultures. Um, and that's why I think, you know, we bring something different to a, a kind of a, a, a normal management consultancy because we've been there and we've done it. Um, and we understand why we are, you know, very special and very different. Yeah. And presumably, uh, as you say, if you if you take a take a look under the management consultancy uh, attire or uniform that you wear, you're still very much that different breed of, of creative yeah, absolutely. And I think also with management consultancies, they're very good at pointing out what's wrong, but they don't necessarily help you, you know, with those practical solutions. And what we do is that we, we will work with the agency um, and be part of the team, um, put a team in. So, you know, we'll do anything from, you know, strategy right through to implementation or just kind of hands-on help advice whatever's needed you know and I think that kind of makes a difference because we'll 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 travel on the journey with them we won't just kind of point out what's wrong but we'll really help them to to make make those changes in order to um to grow and perform better and to be more efficient I'm interested in what that looks like and what the kind of your your uh, biggest priorities tend to be when you partner with agencies because I'm um I'm I'm fairly familiar with Tonic. I'm obviously uh, you and I know each other, and I've been fortunate enough to talk to Ian recently. Um, if there are any agencies out there with challenges, what typically do you see as your? I don't like the term bread and butter, but what what do you what, where, where do you tend to focus your time and attention when you start working with agencies? Do you know what it's it can be it's a real mixed bag because obviously obviously every agency is on a different journey um but we always i mean most agencies have growth on their agenda you know they want to grow in some shape or form and that might be moving into new territories it might be in introducing new sectors or just literally looking at how they can grow better by um you know developing their existing clients or winning new business or just imp- improving their profit margins so you know what growth means first of all is going to be very different um and then also you know it really depends on you know the size of the agency and how much budget they've got and you know how much ambition they've got so we tend to start with you know just getting under the skin of the agency and then working out what we think they should do and what should be priority because a lot of the time it's just um, knowing what you should do and and when you should be doing it Um, because you know the agencies do get stuck you know at different points and it could be something to do with they're just not efficient because they haven't got the right systems maybe they've grown really quickly and they and their systems and they've outgrown the systems they've got maybe they just don't have the right talent in place in order to you know to fulfill their growth strategy maybe there's some kind of issue with the leadership team you know there's all sorts of different things that can be going on and and most of them can be you know easily fixed with the right help Um, but I think it's you know bringing somebody external in to kind of prompt and challenge in the right way and then like I said just to get some kind of priority in place and a lot of the time it's just telling people to to actually not do things and focus on on the things that are going to have the biggest impact um, and kind of do it in in steps because I think what tends to happen a lot is that agencies try to do a lot of things or they're doing nothing you know so it's just trying to get them to to focus on the right things yeah, and I and I think, and speaking from experience, obviously, um, I think it, it, it equally can be something that's just neglected, and and maybe things happen in fits and starts because you realise something's been neglected, and then all of a sudden you have some resource free to chuck at 
business development or whichever part of the um, whichever method of growth, um, however you want to kind of um, articulate that. And then it can start and stop depending on your own client needs. Yeah, I mean, and that that is a big problem, Giles, because what tends to happen is when the panic button is pressed, that's generally when people start thinking about, you know, business development. Um, And actually, it should be something that you should be doing all the time, because what tends to happen is, you know, we all get kind of caught up on, you know, on client work and and we take our our mind off the, the pipeline. And then suddenly there's a big issue. You know, maybe you lose a client or suddenly there's a client um, that, you know, decides that they, you know, there's a change internally client side and they can't um, fulfill maybe the plans that they put in place with you. So I think, you know, agencies don't often think about and anticipate these kind of variations in income they might have. Um, you know, it's down to kind of poor financial planning, you know, at the end of the day. But it's also because, you know, everybody's so busy doing the day to day, they don't give enough focus to the future you know, and and we find this a lot with agencies and suddenly, you know, things are desperate and then they're putting in place some business development plans. Um, and these things take time, you know, to get that business development engine working. You know, it can it can take months and it is the long game now, as we know. The whole the whole kind of new business machine isn't the same as it used to be. You know, most agencies, un, you know, understand that it does take it can take months to get a new client through the door. Yeah, but certainly when we're talking to clients about uh, any form of, I suppose, direct marketing, we, we like to use the metaphor of watering the tree and picking the fruit. And I think um, there's been a phase, certainly with uh, clients that we talk to, of everyone uh, just picking fruit um, with certain types of digital, mostly activations, and neglecting that long-term or not even having a long-term strategy. Things tend to get measured in such ever decreasing cycles of time um but you do you do need to have an idea of the long term particularly as you as you said earlier things there's there's criteria that affects this so one of them is you as you've rightly said is the ambition of the agency um alongside that i've heard you talk about the importance of making sure your own um business strategy and marketing strategy are completely aligned because you need that for your for your own um business development I mean, you'd be surprised how many agencies just aren't clear on on where they're going in terms of their their ambition and vision. You know, so again, we often have to kind of go back a step and just make sure they're they're really clear on that. And also just, you know, have they got objectives? Again, you'll be surprised how many agencies don't, you know. And again, are those those objectives, um, can they be translated into practical um, actions? You know, so it's all well and good having some objectives, but if you can't actually, you know, they're not practical and they're they're not really you know they're not really worth anything yeah it's easy to get fluffy objectives isn't it that you can't truly measure yeah yeah and I think you know you have to be kind of really hard on yourself when you're putting those objectives together and um and be really clear on you know where where are you going to get the where are these opportunities coming from in order to win new business and how can you do it in the most profitable way you know, so there's there's always that profit question as well that should be in the back of your mind. But, um, you know, back to your point, yes, making sure that all your activity is aligned to those objectives. And again, you know, especially for smaller agencies, you know, who tend, you know, just don't do stuff You can just make sure that everything is working towards, you know, the kind of clients that you want to win. 
and the kind of clients that you think are going to be most profitable for your agency um, and just don't do anything else. You know, I think the days of doing um, press, I mean, there's obviously there, there is press activity for awareness building, but also generally when press activity is done really well, it's all in line with with the um, the, the overall business development plan and the, and the objectives. I think another thing that um, agencies struggle with is being really clear on what they're good at and what makes them special, you know, and um, and there is a lot of like, you know, looking at other agencies and how they talk and how they sound and what they're saying. And we always advise our clients, you know, to stop looking at other agencies and, and what they're saying and, and their tone of voice and, and what they're doing. Yes, you do need to know who your competitors are. But, you know, you need to be finding what's unique to you. Um, so having a kind of clear positioning um, really does make a difference. And also really understanding that a really good positioning is all about your offer and your clients. It's not fancy words. And I think a lot of agencies get caught up with and spend a lot of time putting together positionings and propositions that actually don't, don't mean anything. They don't mean anything to the clients. And I think that is one of the things in this industry that we get caught up with. You know, it's that kind of the, the jargon, you know, and the fancy copywriting. And yes, a good positioning does need to be written well, but it actually really does need to be a, a business asset, you know, and it needs to, um, like I said, have, have the clients and the offer very much in mind when you're putting them together. Yeah, you're right. And I think what you've just said about positioning is, I mean, it's the same points um, about objectives, about objectives being fluffy. It's so easy for any company or agency in this instance is positioning to just be fluffy um, and not really, un- and they not really make sense. So yeah, there's jargon at play. There's, 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 you know, looking and sounding like everybody else as if that's a positive, but uh, you know, to echo your point, I, from my perspective, the only reason agencies or, or one of the biggest reasons, certainly, that agencies should be looking at other agencies is just to see how they can make themselves stand out and be distinct and, you know, different if you can be. Yeah, absolutely. So it's definitely part of the process, you know. And also, you know, you like you said, you want to, you know, know who you're up against um, and be clear on their offer. But it is really to make sure that, yeah, that you have that standout and that cut through um, and how can, how can you do that? And often, you know, it gets very subjective when you're doing that. And I've been in agencies where we try to, you know, position, reposition ourselves. And it's it's always a really painful task. And sometimes having, you know, outside perspectives um, can really um, articulate what is going on and, you know, finding out what it is that makes you special. Because every agency, you know, has something that is unique to them and makes them special. But often they just you just can't see it. You can't see the wood for the trees. So when we do positioning exercises, you know, we always say that at the end of the exercise, if anybody says it's the tonic positioning, then we haven't done our job right, because it really should be that all we've done is is pulled out all those great thoughts and ideas and approaches and articulated it in a way that the agency can't. Like I said, because they're just too close to it. So, um, yeah. The positioning doesn't belong to us. You know, the, the agency has to really believe in it um, and, and it belongs to them. And it's something that they can kind of actually move forward with and really make sure that it flows through all their behaviours and communications. Yeah, I agree. And having um, someone external come in can can really help help diagnose uh, exactly that and and again to draw parallels to the to the working clients that, that we have often we'll talk to someone who doesn't think they have 
competitors and i'm you know putting words in your mouth here but i imagine you talk to agency owners who think their positioning is clear but actually it might be clear in their own head because they know what they intend it to mean but if you ask anyone externally and crucially the people who they want that positioning what that positioning is there for they might not understand we we talk well i regularly hear that clients say they don't really have any like for like competition but that's with all the context and knowledge that's in their head. If you look at the target market, they might not have a clue that you're so different. In fact, they, most of the time they don't. Um, so if that isn't clear in your communications and there isn't something in your positioning that, that allows that um, thought that you are different to creep in, then you know you're really you're really fighting you know, fighting a real battle. There's so much friction there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think again, you know the. The, it, it's, it is a business development tool. It's a business asset. So there needs to be that understanding, you know, you know, the relationship between positioning and business development. And like you said, I mean, at the end of the day, a good positioning is all about making you more attractive to clients, make, making clients want to um, engage with you, find out more about you. It's it's a way just to get your foot in the door. You know, obviously, then there's a lot of hard work to be done after that. But, you know, you need to be in the running in the first place. Um and having that, having something distinctive and special um, would just get you across the line in, the, in those early stages when you're just trying to engage with clients initially. Yeah, I'd also add to that, and correct me if, 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 you, know, if, you, if you disagree, but the, it's, it's, it's also about letting people know that you aren't a good fit for, that you're not a good fit for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's appealing to the right people, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, not every client is suited to every agency and vice versa. And I think, you know, what, what tends to happen, you know, when desperation kicks in, you know, agencies are chasing every type of work. Um, and actually, again, if you've done your positioning really well and you've really thought about, you know, the ideal clients um, that are going to, again, you know, make you, you know, to, to fulfil your growth strategy, there'll be clients that you'd, you'd never go after. But, you know, what tends to happen is, is, you know, that all gets forgotten because in, in the madness, you know, and when and when desperation hits. Um, and that's why the initial planning, being really clear on, you know, where it is that you're going and the kind of work you're going after. If you've done that, then even when things do get a bit hairy, which they do, you, you stay focused because you've really given that um, some really kind of rigor in, in the first instance. And you're really clear on your growth strategy, you know, and where you're going in the next kind of one to three years um, and what needs to be done in the short term and the long term. So, I mean, there are lots of things to think about. But actually, I think it's back to that point that we were talking about earlier, that 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 work isn't necessarily done. You know, um, managers and leaders of businesses do tend to be kind of taken away from that work and they're working on the day to day. And again, maybe doing things that, um, you know, aren't their expertise because they're a small team. So we, we often see the case of, you know, the, the CEO and the MD, they're doing HR and they're, they're overseeing IT and things like this you know and there are ways around that so they can be doing the things that they are really really good at and you know and having other expertise brought in that can manage those other functions and actually do them a lot better than they can do them yeah and a lot more effectively and efficiently no doubt I want to talk more about what comes under the umbrella term um, of growth. But before we do, I, I thought I'd go off piece slightly and ask what your opinion is of new biz 
pitch processes and, and, and how best to qualify those. To, so I can give you a, a very recent example. We've, we've declined an opportunity to pitch because the client wouldn't share with us the agencies that we were up against. So, um, which, you know, that, that in itself isn't, doesn't mean it has to be prohibitive necessarily, but it was more their reluctance to share that information. And the way I see it is you wouldn't ask a boxer to enter a ring and not know who his opponent was. Yeah. But what are your, what's your opinion on, on the general pitch process? Because that's evolved quite a bit in, in the time I've been running GAS, which is, which is 10 years. But, you know, going back a lot further, the pitch process is, it, it's, it's something that isn't going to disappear overnight. But, but in my opinion, certainly needs to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you make that point about, you know, asking those questions up front and and not getting the answers that you want. I mean, first of all, it kind of sets off alarm bells. Is this the kind of client that you want to work with? And yes, there's obviously, you know, they have their own kind of procedures in terms of what they can and can't share. But I think there's a lot of kind of cloak and dagger with it, um, which is unnecessary. I also think that, you know, a lot of agencies just don't want to get involved in pitches anymore. It takes so much time and and obviously budget and, you know, for, for morale not to win them is is also not great at all. I mean, I remember in the Ogilvy days, it was an honour to be invited to work on a pitch. You know, you'd, I mean, and I worked on some, some great pitches when I was there because, you know, Ogilvy very much celebrated the whole process. So even if they didn't win, you know, everybody got, um, were rewarded for their contribution. Whereas I think now a lot of people shy away from even wanting to get involved in pitches because maybe they've had a bad experience or the, the risk of failure. But, you know, obviously there's, there's, it does need to change because it's, it's obviously not working at the moment but like you said there is there is improvements and we are seeing improvements in in the way that these are handled and also just to um add a bit more detail to my earlier point that i i have no doubt whatsoever that there are pitch processes being run as we speak and as we record this that are doing things precisely the right way um so i don't want to pull them all in one in one bucket but but equally i think the answer to most pitches that we certainly from my perspective that we've been invited to participate in is the answer really is, is is probably strategic it's less of a it's less of what these pitches become which is more of a beauty pageant and in order to to really deliver what that client need that takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time with the client it takes an abundance of resource and in most instances it's not possible to do that in the brief time you're given to respond yeah. And also, you know, there, there's there's normally a, a window of opportunity to ask some questions throughout that kind of preparation period. And, and obviously that is fundamental. But, you know, if the, if, the, if the wrong questions get asked or you've got the wrong person asking those questions, and this is obviously, you know, down to the, the big issue that we have again in the industry where the wrong people are doing business development jobs they don't have the special you know the specialisms that's needed and the expertise that's needed you can walk into a pitch and be completely off brief and and you know a lot of agencies have seen that and that that's that's agencies of all shapes and sizes and established ones versus new ones and it does happen because those wrong questions are asked in in that one window that you've got but again that is you know that is down to not having the right expertise in house and i think what tends to happen a lot with business development and marketing roles is that it tends to be either somebody tagging it on to another part of their job or you know maybe somebody uh, 
a very bright intern um, has been kind of pulled in to do business development. And also, you know, there's different types of business development roles. You know, there's the guys that are really good at prospecting, you know, and getting on the phone. Um, and then there's the more um, strategic guys, you know, um, very good at putting together pitches and proposals, etc. And I think what tends to happen with agencies, they they try to find one person that can do all of this and throw a bit of marketing and PR in as well. Um, and then wonder why it doesn't work. So I'm a real believer in, in pitches, again, or and in fact, any type of new business that the leaders need to be, be involved. I think that the companies, the agencies that have the best kind of success rate um, tend to have a leader where it's very much part of the culture. And they've probably done a lot of business development throughout their career. And, um, you know, they're leading from the top and making it really part, part of the fabric of the business. So then going back to the so that umbrella term of, of growth. So when I hear the words business development, like a lot of agency folk listening, I probably, well, I do, and I and, and wrongly think just new biz. But actually, and this is something I've heard you articulate really well, is it's it's as much about developing existing clients and, and retaining existing clients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we I we actually put kind of business development. I mean, there's just so there's so many aspects of it. Absolutely, it's developing your existing clients um, because the most successful agencies get seventy to eighty percent of their income from existing clients, which means that it takes massive pressure off trying to get new new business in the door. So there's the developing the existing clients, it's going after new business, but it's also that whole kind of profile area um, and making sure that you've got the continual visibility so that whilst you know you're prospecting and you're developing your clients, you know, you have got good visibility as well. Um, it's also looking at you know, what different partnerships you should be thinking about, you know, for those warm opportunities. There's lots of different aspects to it, um, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what tends to happen is people consider business development as new, new business rather than, you know, developing their existing clients. And so how would you recommend agencies engage with existing clients successfully? Is it just a case of staying in touch and just just talking more is probably, I mean, it's something that I, I think it's fair to say we don't do enough of here. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's first of all, you know, deciding, you know, which clients you want to develop, because you might be working with a whole range of different clients, you know, ones you've had for a long time, ones that you've, um, you're making quite a lot of money out of, uh, and then you've got your favourite clients. So there's a whole mix of clients. But I think first of all, you need to decide which ones are, have, have got the, the best um, potential, really. Um, and then go back to your business objectives. Again, so you need to make sure you've got the business objectives and say, you know, are these clients got the best potential in order for you to meet those business objectives? So you might end up developing some clients that are quite small, but you can see that they're going places. And it might not be, you know, the largest client. It might not be the, the one you've had the longest, but you do need to do a little bit of analysis on that. And then it's a case of just, um, you know, keeping in touch with them, keeping front of mind, you know, making sure that you're um, you're really visible within the organisation. So put yourself forward to speak at, you know, internal forums. I mean, clients are always looking for um, people to um, present at breakfast briefings and, you know, lunch and learns and all those kind of things. You know, they've always got internal newsletters. So if you're writing great opinion content, put it forward to be... Um, to be published in, in on their intranet or in their internal newsletters. 
again, what you're trying to do is make sure that you know as many people in that organization so that the client development becomes a lot easier. And, you know, and we always say, you know, just be nosy, ask questions, you know, find out who is working on what. And also consider doing some client listening studies because often what tends to happen is a client moves on and the agency is completely um, gobsmacked by that presuming that the relationship was brilliant was actually there'd been some things going wrong and then the client moves to the business so if you do the client listening studies and obviously if you do do those and there's some really kind of key actions that come out of it you do need to make sure that you you know you fulfill those those actions but it's a really good way to um, you know get a third party to do that it makes the client feel really valuable and you you just find out you know how they feel about you and the people that are working the business and your processes and, and the structures etc and the quality of work and then you can improve and obviously feed back to the client and make any changes that they've recommended. And sometimes, again, they're very small changes, but some of those changes could mean that, you know, whether or not they, they, they keep the business with you or not. That sounds like a really good idea. So for anyone, um, so anyone who's listening, I mean, you gave a good overview there, but for anyone listening who isn't entirely sure what a client listening study is, and I'll throw my name in the ring there as well, can you explain exactly what that is and how that works? Yeah, so what tends to happen is you, you've already probably, you know, decided that you've got maybe five key clients that you want to develop. And then what tends to happen is, is that, and, it, and it's always better to get somebody external to do this because clients will be much more open with someone, somebody who's a third party. So you tend to come up with a list of questions to ask the client and you work with the agency on that. And obviously you need to get really under the skin of the client because you need to, whoever's doing the, the listening study needs to know anything that might get thrown at them. So, you know, any issues, the good, the bad, the ugly, you need to find about all, find out about all of that. And then it's usually either a face-to-face or a telephone interview, you know, that could be up to an hour. And you just talk really openly about the relationship. And like I said, the quality of the work. So you're looking right through from strategy to production, to, you know, depending what the agency does. And the people that work on the account, um, just to get a feel for you know what the client you know thinks of the agency, um, and then and also the other thing that which is really interesting is often clients have pigeonholed the agency into one type of business, and you might be doing a load of other things that you could be offering that client. So this is a really good opportunity to find out what plans the client has, you know, in terms of the way they're innovating or any changes in the business or any challenges they've got. And then obviously you can put yourself forward as an agency that can help them with those. And generally when client listing studies are done really well, it actually generates new businesses off the back of it. So it can just be a, a, a pure five clients, 10 clients, telephone interviews um, or face-to-face. For bigger agencies, there might be like an online um, survey as well where you reach out to a much bigger group of people. But again, it would be um, just within those clients and probably certain roles. Um, So it would be the clients that you work with, but it would also be those influencers that maybe aren't holding the budget um, but do have an influence behind but behind the scenes and maybe know of you, um, but you may not even met them, you know. So it's been really clever who you speak to because there's always people behind the scenes that that have a have a kind of impact on on what's happening with agencies. So again, you need to have done your homework on that. 
Yeah, and and I think that's I think it all sounds brilliant. So thanks for explaining that. But also, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes to really discover who who makes decisions in certain organisations. I mean, we've seen it firsthand with with clients of all shapes and sizes, um, and it's difficult to to decide, say, just by job title, how someone's voice is received internally uh, but that you know that's true of agencies that's true here yeah and I think that's why you just have to just be part of the fabric you know and also just um just get them you know get get the clients to trust you and I think you know when you've built up that relationship and you've delivered really good work and they trust you and you know you've gone above and beyond you know you've made their life easier you know because at the end of the day if you make a client's life easier then you know they're going to be on your side and then you you feel that you've got the license to ask them those questions and find out you know who's doing what and and again you know keep your eye on the media when there's changes you know and just make sure that you're you know you're always on top of any moves that are happening internally in the business and have somebody that you can ask those questions to can you tell us about tonic talks I know that's something that you guys run. Um, I attended one recently and it was fantastic. So can we just give that a, a little plug before we uh, before we move on? Yeah, why, why not? Why not? Um, so, I mean, again, the advice that we would give to, you know, our agency clients is, you know, think about the, the topics that you want to talk about um, that are meaningful to your clients. So back to the point earlier that in, in the introduction, you know, not things that are inward looking that you think are interesting, but the things that are challenging your clients day to day. So we practice what we preach and we have some key themes that we think are the the kind of the things that are, you know, challenging agencies and, and, and leaders um, today. So Tonic Talks is, is our event platform where we share, you know, our thoughts and our insight and our knowledge. So we've done lots of different talks around um, the one that you came to was on client development. And we've done talks on how you can get an edge with business development. We've also done a talk which is around the creating value. So agencies who are thinking about wanting to sell. How can they make sure that they're creating value? Um, and the next one we're doing is all around profitability and how, how you can be a profitable, more profitable agency. And how can people find out when the next events are and, and, and get involved? Because I, I, mean, I know you don't struggle for bums on seats, but at least, at least let's try and force you to move to a bigger venue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think obviously the topics are of interest so that is great um so people seem to enjoy them and also they're really practical and a really nice bunch of people come very open um and you know lots of questions get asked and people really do share their experiences there so we're, we're very lucky that um we've always pulled a really good crowd but yeah we um we do use linkedin i know it's had bad press in some of your previous podcasts but that that's the social channel that we use so we t- we announce all of our um um, tonic talks on our linkedin page which is tonic creative business partners and um and o- on our website which is tonicpartners.co.uk perfect perfect right we, we've a couple of listener questions i want to put to you but before we do i don't i don't want to avoid talking about your singing side hustle okay <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so so can you tell our listeners about that yeah i mean i've got to say um it was a, mo- a moment of madness, I think. Um, back, back to the quick fire questions, beer or wine. It was definitely wine that night. That, <laughs> that did have an influence. 
But um, there's a group of people that I know. Actually, it's a lady I, I worked with at Dragon Rouge. Um, they um, have been doing events over the last, you know, three or four years um, for the um, Anthony Nolan Trust um, in memory of, of a friend of theirs. So they've been doing all these kind of weird and wonderful events. And then they decided to do one which was our take on Stars in Your Eyes. And it was called Stars Who Ate Too Many Pies. Obviously, <laughs> obviously we're all a bit older. And, um, and it was basically at the Islington Assembly Halls, uh, 900 capacity, which we filled. And we all um, did a lot of singing training um, to go up and kind of um, and, and sing publicly. And I was part of um, Queen and we'd done Bohemian Rhapsody. So anybody who's a music lover will know that's a really complicated song. So we weren't... Um, I've got to say we weren't, you know, flavor of the month with the band because it is one of those songs that if you get it wrong, the band can't save you. It's very, very complicated. But anyway, we, we aimed high. And I've got to say it was it was a fantastic experience. I mean, we raised £35,000 for the charity. Um, and, you know, I met some kind of truly remarkable people. Um, and like I said, they've been doing this for years. This is the first time I was involved. And it's interesting, really, because... You know, I know singing now um, has been kind of officially confirmed as um, a, a therapy, um, you know, for people that have depression. And, you know, the year before I'd had a particularly tough year um, and, and the singing was absolutely amazing. You know, it really does help you get your, your mojo back. So on many levels, it was a fantastic experience. Amazing. Stars, you ate too many pies. Love it. <laughs> Funny enough, I once served Matthew Kelly a pint in my brother's pub in Richmond, and and I said tonight, Matthew, that'll be three pound fifty. And he, and he, no, he looked at me like I'd just insulted his mum. It was it was so <laughs> awkward. I was so proud of that joke. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You're like, God, this is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet he's never heard this one. <laughs> so, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So, we've selected two as usual. Uh, question one then, Kerry. Paul asks, what are the most common mistakes you see agencies make? Oh, God. Okay. Well, I probably talked about a few of these already um, in terms of, you know, no clear direction, focus, not understanding, you know, why they're special, etc. But I think one of the, the biggest issues and mistakes they make is around pricing. I think a lot of agencies are, are too soft, when it comes to dealing with those kind of commercial pricing negotiations with clients, offer work too cheaply, maybe don't negotiate fair prices for the work. And at the end of the day, you know, what we do really does have great value and we should be paid fairly for it. But I do think that um, a lot of agencies go in, go in too low. And again, that is, I think, the, 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 rigor, the rigorous thought in terms of, you know, what they're offering and why they're special probably hasn't happened um so you know there's a little bit of fear factor you know and obviously once you once you negotiate low with a client if it becomes a long-term client it's quite hard to get those prices up to where they where they should be at the industry standard the other thing is and I mentioned this earlier is kind of poor financial planning and, and not anticipating those variations in income which are going to happen you know and making sure that you're planning accordingly, you know. So I think that's um, that's also something that um, agent a mistake that agencies make. A big one is around people management, and just maybe 
leaders and managers um, not inspiring their staff enough, delegating properly and developing staff. And as we know, you know, demotivated staff do poor work and, and then they leave. So I think, you know, um, people management and making sure that you really do, you know, retain the right people, develop the right people um, and, and, and attract the right people. And again, you know, profile, you know, doing great work and having a great profile really does help, you know, attract the right kind of people. So, yeah, I mean, obviously they're, they're, quite, they're quite big issues, but I think they're all big mistakes that a lot of agencies make. Great answer. Question two comes from Claire and Claire says, I'm starting my final year of studying marketing, communications and PR at Southampton University and I'm unsure on starting a career client side versus agency side. How should I choose? Right. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, I think the first first thing Claire needs to think about is, you know, what, what, what you know, what, what's her overall ambition, her personal ambition? You know, does she have some kind of vision for the long term? And back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, what what's her character and personality like? Because there's there's different environments that people perform better in. And like I said, you know, when I went client side, it was it was a bit too formal, too many procedures, um, and it wasn't as creative as as I had enjoyed and, and I wanted to be in. But I think the great thing is is that there there is overlap now. You know, if you go client side, there is opportunities to go agency side and vice versa. And I know from my experience in agencies, you know, having a client um, coming in and working in the business brought, you know, very different perspectives uh, and that kind of insight, the behind the scenes insight that agencies are always wanting to know, you know. So, you know, in an ideal world, you'd probably do both because, you know, that would give you more opportunities. But back to our point earlier, a lot of time client side, you're, you're not doing the fun, creative stuff. So if that's kind of... If that's your personality and 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 your kind of love, maybe, maybe agency side is is kind of better. Yeah, that makes sense. And and as exactly as you say, it's not, you're not choosing one for life. Yeah, exactly. And as we know, there's there's a lot of movement now. You know, people don't stay in jobs. You know, for for many many years like they used to. It's literally you know a couple of years and move on. And obviously that 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 makes you grow and learn and expose you to lots of different environments. So yeah, you know, I think it's a case of if you if you can get the opportunity to do client side and agency side, um, at least then your decision's very clear. Yeah, and I, and I think just to echo your earlier point, at least you you become a bit more empathetic for clients. You, you develop that empathy and understand things from their perspective, particularly working with agencies. Yeah. So the final part of the interview then, Kerry, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So these are our usual questions, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Okay, so um, I think, I mean, I I was always really blessed with having good bosses and role models. And I think looking back, I wish I'd probably taken advantage more of their knowledge and experience. So unofficial mentors. I've done a, I've done more of that as I've got older, and and I kind of unofficially mentor people as well. Um, I just think that it's a shame I hadn't done that earlier in my career because I think that the knowledge and the expertise from people that are older than you that you admire and respect is invaluable. So yeah, I, I kind of wish that maybe I had been kind of smart enough to to have done more of that when I was when I was kind of first developing and growing. Okay, yeah, that's good advice. 
Um, if you could banish one thing from the industry, Kerry, what would that be and why? Oh, okay. I don't think I've got one. I've probably got more than one. But, um, <laughs> I'd probably say egos. <laughs> ah, okay, yeah, nice one. Because there are quite a lot, as we know. And I think sometimes there's the egos, which, you know, they're very clearly, you know, they have an ego and they're, and they're, and they're proud about it. Um, but then I think the ones that are kind of slightly worse are the people that pretend they don't have an ego. Um, so, yeah, that, that is, um, that, that's always interesting because, um, yeah, we, we do have a few of those um, in the industry. But again, the other thing would probably be jargon. You know, I think we're getting better at that. I remember when first started out at Ogilvy, you know, there was a lot of jargon and client, you know, clients aren't interested. I think it's, again, you know, just being really simple and clear, clarity in what you're saying um, and don't um, don't kind of hide it under, you know, fancy words and, and jargon. Well, I think both of those things, both size of egos and, and quantity of jargon used is almost inversely proportional to, to to real talent not 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 always but you know yeah I think you're right yeah hiding behind those things are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners yeah I mean I'm not I'm, I've got to say I don't write I don't read many industry business books I mean over the years I have done it needn't it need be industry yeah do you know and I, the book that I've got to say that I found kind of most interesting and and I'm going to say life-changing it's quite a big statement I'm going to say that um it's kind of a spiritual book and it's called The Four Agreements by um Don Miguel Reese and basically this book I think if everybody read it the world would be a, a much better place so it putting it simply the four agreements are always be true to your word don't take things personally don't make assumptions and always do your best. So it, it's, it, it made me think very differently about a lot of things and situations and just being, you know, much more clear minded um, every day. So, yeah, I, I, I did enjoy reading that book and I have recommended it to quite a few people over the years. OK, brilliant. Well, we'll, we'll link to that book and um, might even send a copy to the White House. <laughs> exactly. Why not? Amazing. Okay. Um, so lastly then, Kerry, we always like to dedicate each episode to someone and we like to pass that honour to our guest. Okay. So I should probably dedicate this to um, the gentleman on the, the Ford of Europe account at Ogilvy, an American guy called Sean Neal, who obviously gave me my first break. So yeah, I think, I think yeah, if Sean's listening, thank you very much for seeing something in me. And um, and like yeah, giving giving me that first step on the um, on the ladder in advertising. Amazing. Well, this episode is then very proudly dedicated to Sean Neal. Uh, so, as a final call to action, everyone can head over to this episode online, um, where we'll share links to everything discussed in the last hour, including the four agreements, Tonic's website, link to Tonic Talks, um, and everything else we've touched on. How else can our listeners get more Kerry O'Connor? Well, I think it's a case of, you know, if they want to link in with me, um, I'm always open to um, meeting interesting people. I think you can never meet enough interesting people. So, yeah, Kerry O'Connor on LinkedIn. Um, and it'd be great to um, get a few more uh, people along to our events. If they think that we can help them on, on their journey to growth. Yeah, just to reiterate my earlier point, I highly recommend attending Tonic Talks. 
I'm coming to the next one. I've been to one already. I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start. Um... We'll, have your seat. we'll have your seat waiting for you. Not quite. You weren't quite up the front. You were kind of second row, just so I could keep my eye on you. But... <laughs> Eyeballing. Not causing too much trouble in the second row. No, day. no. Well, I'll try to sit at the back and stay out of trouble this time. Uh, but thank you uh, for joining us, Kerry. It's been it's been a real pleasure to talk. No, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been my pleasure as well. And I'm um, looking forward to hearing more podcasts from you guys. Um, they're most enjoyable. So again, if, if people are listening to this one for the first time, they should check out some of the others because they're all they're all really good. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Um, so yeah, so thank you to everyone, everyone listening. So do continue to share and review that that particularly means a lot to us and, and keep sending those questions in for us to pair with future guests to do so and just to get in touch you can find gasp online or just email the show at hello at call to action.co Try and I try and I try and I try.